This is Suddenly Family. I'm Samuel Burke, and these are the true stories of people's lives forever changed by at-home DNA tests. The wild success of consumer DNA testing hasn't just happened overnight. Since the late 1990s, at-home DNA kits have allowed us to send in samples of ourselves through the mail. Multiple companies have been collecting and cataloging us for more than two decades. By now, some of the earliest users may have forgotten they took the tests, but the databases haven't forgotten about them. Many of the people who've sent in their samples have passed away, but the record of their DNA lives on forever. When a man named Hal White gets his wife to take a DNA test, he has no idea how the results will send shockwaves through her life years after he dies. And he said, let's send in a sample and see what we find out. That was 16 years ago, and it was just kind of a whim. He had logged into the account less than a month before he passed away, and there he was. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, this is real. Oh, my God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's amazing. (laughs) A deceased man's DNA account holds the secret of a lifetime. That's coming up on Suddenly Family. If you're listening to this podcast, that means you appreciate investigative storytelling. What if you had the chance to investigate and share important stories? Whether you want to dive into a new career in journalism or start your own investigative podcast, the Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University offers a variety of graduate programs just for you. My first step was visiting cronkite.asu.edu where you can explore the master's degrees in investigative journalism, mass communication, and sports journalism. Now, back to Suddenly Family. Beverly White was born and raised in Jonesboro, Arkansas. It's a small city with southern charm not far from Memphis, Tennessee. Beverly says from the outside, her childhood looked typical for a conservative family there. I had a... Christian upbringing. My mother was a very strong Christian. My father was too. Unfortunately, he had a severe drinking problem. He was an alcoholic and things were very dysfunctional. It was total chaos my entire childhood and it was not pleasant. There was not a good family unit in any shape, form, or fashion. What type of effect did that have on you growing up? It was devastating. It was very difficult. It had a lot to do with my behavior. I did not feel very loved by him. It gave me a very distorted idea of love. Plus, on top of all of that, I developed a case of epilepsy when I was 12, and I started having seizures. I had seizures all through high school. They were severe. I had seizures at school. 
I had seizures everywhere. I would have them in my sleep. I would have them in class. I would have them all the time. My grades started going down. I withdrew from a lot of friends until I met Jerry and I cared a lot for him. And that was so refreshing. And in this time that you're dating, you become pregnant. Yes. I think it was just kind of one of those things that we got caught up in the moment. My first thought, of course, was panic. I was 18. It was in the spring of 1973. When you realize that you're pregnant, you're in what I think is fair to describe as a very conservative Christian area, household. Did you feel a lot of shame? And Oh, my word, yes. I felt so guilty and so terrible. I felt like I had failed myself, my parents, especially my mother. I just felt like such a bad person all the way around. I felt definitely like I had And with only months to go before Beverly's visibly pregnant, her family is busy thinking of a way to conceal what's happening from the community. A major tornado hit Jonesboro that year, and our house was torn apart. The house was not inhabitable, so we just told people I went to stay with my sister in Memphis, where, in actuality... I had gone to a home for unwicked mothers in Little Rock. Beverly, as you're pregnant and you're thinking about what's going to happen, do you consider ending your pregnancy? No. In my mind, even though that year they had made abortion legal, with my faith, with what I believe, that was not an option. With the shape my father was in, I could not bring a baby into that home. I could not do that to a child. It was so bad. I could not hardly live in it myself. I could not take care of me, much less a baby. I felt like giving her up was what I had to do for her. Giving her up for adoption. It was the absolute hardest thing I have ever done in my life. Are you experiencing the same seizures as you're pregnant that you had experienced your whole life before that? I would have as many at times as 15 grand mal seizures a day. I have figured over the course of my pregnancy, I probably had 700 to 800 seizures. The whole nine months I was pregnant with her, I never felt her move. The other girls in the home, they would always talk about, oh, my baby kicked, oh, I could feel my baby kick. I never felt anything. It bothered me, but I was too scared to say anything. In spite of her unwavering faith, 
Beverly feels there's a dark cloud hanging over her and the baby girl she's been caring for nine months. As she goes into labor, Beverly's sedated. When she wakes up, there's no baby for her to hold. So I never saw her. They didn't share a lot with you. And that was it. Before Beverly leaves the hospital, she insists the doctors put in a handwritten note with details of her epilepsy into the baby's file. She wants to ensure the adoptive parents have this vital information, but strangely, the doctors seem indifferent, and it makes Beverly start questioning whether her baby girl has survived the birth. After I had her, my mother had contacted the home to see if she had been adopted, and they gave us a very evasive answer. And even my mother seemed to think that she had probably died. Beverly is shattered. It's a heavy burden she carries for years. Eventually, she meets the man who will become her husband, and as they plan to have their own children, Beverly starts to learn more about the effects seizures have on pregnancies. It wasn't until five years later that I realized what the epilepsy and the drugs and the lack of movement, all of that meant. When I started my own family with my husband, my neurologist at that point started pointing out to me the dangers of the drugs I was taking. He got me off of the medication, and it took me back to when I was pregnant. All of the drugs I had to take, not feeling any movement, all of the seizures, which could also have caused many problems, they told me, because of cutting off oxygen to the fetus, everything else. I was scared for what I might have done to her. I asked some of the doctors I had what the effects would have been. I shared with them about having her, and they were very evasive in what they told me. Did that evasiveness make you think that they were just not wanting to tell you that the baby likely died? Exactly. And from all of that information over the years and the more research that came out about epilepsy, the drugs, all of it, I had convinced myself that she probably had passed. Would you think about her often? Oh, yes. So many times and every year on her birthday, I would have to take time away and I would think about her. I would pray for her every day, but her birthday was always hard. Do you remember when you first started hearing about DNA testing? I do. My husband was very much into genealogy. He had gotten on Ancestry.com, had an account for years, and tracing back family members and all of that. And he said, let's send in a sample and see what we find out. And I said, okay. That was 16 years ago. And it was just kind of a whim. 
Did you ever tell your husband that you had had a child previously? Oh, yes. Yes. He knew I had a child and gave it up before we ever married. So there's nothing for Beverly to hide when she and her husband submit their DNA. These tests match you to other test takers who share your DNA. Parents, siblings, children. But when Beverly and her husband get their results, there's nothing out of the ordinary. He was more looking for lineage, that type thing, from our families. And he never found anything for me anyway. He was the only one that got on Ancestry. I don't think I ever really got on there, even though he had the account set up for me. That was more it to look at heritage instead of any matches. And I just never really got into it. Beverly's husband dies in 2017 at the age of 64. And with his passing, the couple's Ancestry.com accounts go dormant. Accounts Beverly's never checked, doesn't think about, and barely even recalls exist. About a year and a half after my husband passed away, I got an email one day. And I opened it up, and I started reading it, and I was in shock. We'll be right back. Podcasts shed light on stories that otherwise may not be told. What if you could be that voice for someone? Well, you can. The Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University allows you to do just that. Become an investigative journalist, a strategic communicator in the media field, or a thought leader in the world of sports. Do what I did. Visit cronkite.asu.edu to learn more about their graduate degrees. Who will you become at the Cronkite School? Now, back to Suddenly Family. I got an email one day, and I opened it up, and I started reading it, and I was in shock. It told me who she was and that there was a DNA match on Ancestry.com. She went on to tell me that she wasn't expecting anything, but she thought that I was her birth mother. Now, she gave me her birth date, but the birth date was not the birth date I had and that I remembered having her. And I thought, okay, this doesn't quite sound right. Is this a scam or what? I was somewhat thinking, if this is her, praise the Lord, could it possibly be? This would be fantastic, but I just don't know if it's not. This is terrible. I was in shock. And Beverly, of so long you've believed that in all likelihood, the daughter that you gave birth- I'm real good at putting on an outer covering to stay cool when I'm falling apart inside. So I did. So how do you decide to reply to the email? I got back with her and I said, give me some more details. You know, and I'm old school. And I said, where, when, what, what hospital, what can you tell me? She said, There was a note written on the back of my papers in handwriting, and it said, 
birth mother had epilepsy. When you open up that email and read those words, what goes through your body? Oh my God. <laughs> Tears, joy, praising God, hallelujah. Oh, this is real. Oh my God, thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't imagine what good did I do to deserve this. It's amazing. <laughs> I just, even thinking about it now, I'm beside myself. <laughs> it was unreal. It was amazing. And it still is. On the other side of that email is Beverly's daughter, 45-year-old Julie Bailey Barker, someone who never planned to send any message like the one she sent to her birth mother. I'm just Julie. I'm just a wife and a mom and a daughter. And my husband and I own our own business. What type of upbringing did you have? Almost beaver cleaver. A very stable home. Mom, dad, brother, extended family, lots of family. Unbelievable love. And very faith-based, which is such a blessing. Julie grows up in Arkansas. Her adoptive parents, Jeannie and Philip, can't have their own biological children. So first they adopt a little boy. And then three years later, a little girl. Julie. When do you first recall that you realized or you found out that you were adopted? I have always known I was adopted. My mom and dad, from the time that we were old enough to understand, my brother and I were both adopted. And I don't ever recall not knowing I was adopted. It's the only thing I've ever known. And I'm thankful for that. Did you ever long to meet your biological parents? I was extremely curious. As far as actually meeting them, not necessarily. I didn't really have a void in my life the way many adoptees talk about it. My life was full. My life was complete. And this is how Julie feels for decades. By 2016, Julie is 45 married, and has two little boys. That's when her curiosity about her own heritage starts growing. I had been considering taking a DNA test for several years, but I did not want to find anyone. I was just curious. It was just that curiosity of what am I? Because I had no idea. My ethnicity yeah, ethnicity, basically. Like so many people who take a DNA test, Julie doesn't really grasp the fact they match you to close relatives who've taken the same company's test. So much of the advertising solely focuses on heritage. 40% Irish, 20% Italian, 10% Russian. And that's really all Julie is expecting. I get the results back on my test and I matched with my biological mother. What's that like? 
you go through all these years of your life, and then all of a sudden, what do you see in front of you? I see that she is no longer an idea. There she is. And we just matched our DNA. And I had a few moments of, I freaked out. I mean, the very last thing I expected. The problem was her match, her DNA profile was set up with initials only, and it was managed by someone who just had a username only. There was no tree, there was no, there hadn't been any research done on that account. So even though I matched with this person, there was no identifying information. So do you decide to message that person? Initially, I just looked at it. I did not want to surprise anyone. I did not want to suddenly show up in someone's life and they would not be receptive. I wanted to be respectful of the fact that this person 46 years ago placed me for adoption under the understanding that we were never going to meet and we were never going to know who each other were. And I wanted to be respectful of that. But at the same time, if anybody ever reached out to me, I would gladly have responded back to them. So Julie just leaves it there. The door is right in front of her. And instead of going through it, Julie just makes sure the door stays open for the person on the other side. But it's not that easy for Julie because she's hoping her birth mother reaches out. So she goes back to Ancestry.com over and over again to check until a life-changing event. On April 1st of 2019, I was diagnosed with a congenital hearing impairment that may or may not be hereditary. And that is the first time in my life that there was a medical issue that I had no information but needed information. But if you were diagnosed with this hearing impairment that could be hereditary, you've already been diagnosed, so what does it matter what you might be able to find out on a DNA test? Well, I have children. So my audiologist said, because you have no history, it may or may not be hereditary. And I'm sitting here thinking, I have children. I need to know if this is hereditary or what. So therefore, I really started looking at my DNA matches way more intensely, (laughs) especially my biological mother. And I started taking more steps. I was part of a DNA group on Facebook and a gentleman helped me. And the next thing I know, he sends me a report that has all of my biological mother's contact information on it. Her address, her phone numbers, her emails. I could have got in my car at that moment and drove to her house. Julie doesn't drive to her biological mother's house. Instead, she does the first thing that nearly everybody who has a life-changing DNA discovery does. What's it like when you click onto her Facebook account for the first time and you're seeing 
your biological mother's face. <laughs> There's not a word to describe that. Love, respect, gratitude, and just the pure awesomeness of the moment. She was no longer an idea. She was no longer a what if. She was real, and I was looking at her. And do you decide to contact her immediately? I waited a few days because I, I didn't want to react in such an emotional moment. I waited a few days. And so on May 9th of 2019, I sent her a very vague email. She responded at 7.30 on May 10th. What did she say? Julie, you sound like a wonderful person that anyone would be proud to know as their daughter. I'm trying to process all of this and the possibility that I am who you are looking for. I did have a child, but because of lack of information we were given and other medical reasons, I was led to believe the child had passed. I never knew for sure. Whoa. Yes. Wow. What goes through your mind when you read that your biological mother believes that you were dead? <laughs> exactly what your reaction just was. It was, oh my gosh, what in the world happened? My life took on a whole new perspective that quickly, in a snap. What's the story you make up in your mind? You just have no idea. So I'm sitting here trying to convince this woman that I am her daughter and she thinks I am dead. So now I go back to her and I give her all of my stats, my birth date, the time I was born, the hospital I was born in, there was a little handwritten note. It was just like a little side thought. And that handwritten note said, mother was epileptic and on medication. And when I mentioned that note, she then responded, Julie, from the information, I know you are my daughter. You are a miracle. There is so much I would like to say and ask. Do you ask her questions about who your biological father was? I think it was our second telephone conversation. She said, do you want to know who your biological father is? And I said, of course I do. So she immediately told me who he was and everything just fell right into place. The reason that you were originally reaching out to your biological mother was to get medical information, was to find out if the hearing loss that you were experiencing would affect your boys, your sons. Yes, my hearing loss is because of the medications that she was on while pregnant with me. So it wasn't hereditary. So while terrible, given the fact that you've lost so much hearing now because of this, this is a miracle. This is great news to you. Absolutely. While it's frustrating, my hearing loss and some of the issues that go with it, this is incredibly good news for me because I didn't have to worry about it being a hereditary trait that I passed on to my children. 
While much of this sounds like a dream come true, it's still not easy. Julie and Beverly work slowly to form a relationship, but from the moment Beverly reads Julie's first email, she's realizing something that can only be described as the cruelest of ironies. Just as Beverly discovers her daughter is alive, she learns her 33-year-old son, Stephen, is dying from cancer. What was it like to be losing a son as you were gaining a daughter? Oh, total chaos. It's something I haven't really been able to deal with all of it yet. Julie has been amazing for me. She's gotten me through so much with Stephen. Julie was put here to get me through some of the things with Stephen. I see why she was where she was at very specific moments in that journey. And the fact that Julie was here when Stephen actually died, I see the reasons for all of that. I needed her to help me get through watching my son die. God put her in my life when he did to help me. There's no doubt about it. Then Beverly is confronted with yet another hardship. Julie is diagnosed with a thyroid problem requiring surgery. The moment opens the door for an incredible act of gratitude between Julie's birth mother and her adoptive mother, Jeannie. I walked in and Julie had a whole entourage of people. Her husband, of course, I'd already met him, a pastor, several ladies from her church, her mother Jeannie, and I knew who Jeannie was immediately. And I walked over to Jeannie. I had gotten her a ceramic owl because I knew she collected them. And I handed it to her and I said, I got you a little something. And I said, I'm Beverly. And she said, I'm Jeannie. She stood up, we hugged each other, and she said, you are such an answer to my prayers. And that did everything for me. That made me feel like all of the pain, the guilt, everything I felt for 40 plus years had a purpose. And what do you say to Jeannie? She was the answer to mine. We both said that to each other at the same time. You are exactly what I prayed for. On our next episode, the DNA story of a woman with six different parents. She went out Christmas caroling with a youth group, and she didn't return. They felt that she passed away, that she was killed, murdered. Christmas Day, I'm looking at my 23andMe DNA matches. See this new one? It had this really unusual profile that caught my attention. Then, my golly, the emotions and the tears. That's on the following edition of Suddenly Family, a production of CNN Philippines and Loomis Productions. Our editors are Lori Burke, Elizabeth Joseph, and Elaine Lee. Sound engineer, Levi Mercurio. Executive producer, Michelle Ancheta. Executive consultant, Army Harin Bennett. This show is created, written, and hosted by me. I'm Samuel Burke.
have a responsibility as a journalist to tell the public what's going on. Now more than ever, the role of the media and journalists is extremely important. I make that first rough draft of history in Tawagian. As journalists, we deliver the news, we give the right kind of information. News really has the power to shape and influence a person's perspective of the world. It's about the people, it's about the stories. We verify, we confirm, we double check, we triple check from different sources. To give them the truth. Trust in one word, I would believe, is integrity. You can't force trust, you have to earn it. People can't trust me if they know that I don't know what I'm talking about. It can be very challenging, but it's very, very fulfilling. News, 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 you can trust. News, you can trust. This is CNN Philippines. News you can trust.